Hey, my friends. Uh, this episode was supposed to drop back in the summer, and uh, well, you know, the ongoing uh, stresses, tensions, and dramas of uh, rebuilding after the fire basically have delayed it till now. So this is the uh, return to podcasting, and uh, I'm hopeful to be uh, back on a bi-weekly schedule, starting with this episode and, uh, you know, continuing going forward. Uh, if you have been waiting to uh, visit the store, shop online, or book a reading with me, all of those businesses are back online, and I appreciate your continued support with that. Welcome to another episode of the Hermit's Lamp podcast. I am joined today by Mal Strangefellow. And I've been following Mal online for quite a while. And recently, he's gotten into starting a church. And a lot of the dialogue around that has been very fascinating to me. So I thought that uh, inviting him on to uh, talk about some of these things would be uh, really entertaining because I think there's so many fascinating questions about uh, legitimacy, legacy, lineage, and all sorts of stuff that people are um, or ought to be thinking about as they're going about in various traditions right now. And uh, at the birth of something new seems like a great place to revisit those conversations. So for people who might not know you, Mal, um, give us give us the introduction. Who are you? What are you about? <laughs> oh, wow. Um you know, and I don't mean this to sound sound like I'm I'm bragging. It's mostly just because I'm I'm getting older and my memory is is, is lagging. But it, when you when you've done, I don't want to say so much, but when you've done enough, at some point it starts to become difficult to figure out how to answer that question. Sure. <laughs> um, I got my start in esoterica during uh, the. Mid mid eighties. I am solidly in that uh, you know boomer cusp, early Gen X region. Um, went into went into the army uh, right out of high school, and and after that, uh, got it into my head that uh, I wanted to be a Buddhist monk, mm -hmm. and uh, ended up doing that for a number of years. I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, a novice, and and fully ordained Getzul and Gelong. Um, after a few years or early 90s, uh, wanted to go and get a college degree, went to the University of Oregon, go Ducks. And, um, you know, it discovered that it's, it's a lot harder to be a celibate monk in a university than it is in a <laughs> monastery. Uh-huh. Go figure. And uh, ended up returning my vows. And uh, at that point, I just kind of wandered back and forth among a, a number of different things, sort of exploring um, alternate routes of spirituality, continuing to, to practice magic. Of course, the internet uh, was really just sort of starting uh, to, to become popular at this time. Um, you know, we were moving beyond the, the text-based green screen uh, kind of stuff and, and actually getting a graphical interface to the internet, uh, discussion boards, alt magic, of course, uh, was going like gangbusters. This is just at the cusp of the, 
the infamous Golden Dawn Wars of the early early to mid nineties, and um, ended up getting involved with the Golden Dawn. Uh, was uh, actually my um, neophyte initiation in the Golden Dawn uh, was done with uh, Israel Regardi's handmade tools. And uh, I, I believe a mutual friend of ours, Poke Runyon, uh, was the Carex for that and uh, he gave me his flu. Uh, so. <laughs> it's a that, magical uh, blessing indeed. <laughs> right. Um, and it, it kind of, there, there, there was some floundering, I would say, towards the late 90s, got involved in the Temple of Set, uh, stayed there long enough to be uh, recognized to the third degree, their, their priesthood, um, at which, and this is the, I bring this up because it, it encompasses sort of a pivotal event for me. Um, uh, James Grabe was uh, also a member of the temple and a member of the OTO. Um, and at the time when I actually met him in person, there he was um, on the outs with uh, the, the current leadership, uh, Hymenius Beta. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I've never done any OTO stuff, so that guy. And uh, I, I don't know what there there was. Some, I don't know if they were. Uh, I, I think there was some sort of lawsuit or something. Anyway, they were pissed off. We were at a, a conclave, which is an annual uh, temple gathering. And we were in the hotel bar and just sort of chatting. And, um, you know, I was a second degree adept at the time. And so I was starstruck at, at his degree and, and his history. And we were just talking and he was mostly talking. And uh, he had mentioned that uh, he had apostolic succession as a bishop. And one of the things, among other things, that the current leadership wanted from him was consecration as a bishop for their EGC. Hmm. Uh, and, and he was basically just inviting them to peruse the fine example of the back of his middle finger on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, what? basically, I'll consecrate, uh, you know, anybody else, anybody but them. Hell, you want to be consecrated? And I was like, um, yeah okay it's like all right cool so we actually made a plan for the next night we uh he had a suite in the hotel and i showed up and we went through deacon priest and i was consecrated a bishop that night mm. and uh he was like there you go now you're a bishop and i was like well awesome thank you this is uh 90 98 99 ish and um which oddly enough feels like, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago for me, but sure. Um, yeah. I was like, you know, so, so what do I do with this? He's like, ah, fuck, I don't care. Uh, can I say fuck? I can say fuck, right? Can say fuck. It's fine. All right, cool. Go ahead. Fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was like, I, I don't care. Uh, you know, here's some stuff. And I got like loose leaf printouts, uh, you know, some ideas that he had had um, about sort of a, a Joanite spirituality and, uh, you know, I, I got, you know, an old Xeroxed copy of his um, succession, apostolic succession and stuff like that. And I just sort of filed it away and did nothing with it mm. until I resigned, after I resigned from the temple uh, as a priest, it was, you know, interpersonal political stuff. Wasn't uh, it always, didn't, right? Right. You know, it's, uh, there was a, a group that was up and coming in the temple. They have since uh, been, been purged out, but... Uh, I, I was not in that group and uh, yeah, ended up just resigning rather than, than dealing with 
all of the the people bullshit that comes with that. And in trying to figure out, all right, what the hell do I want to do now? Said, you know, well, I've, I've, I've got these kind of things to fall back on. I wonder if I could do this. And so I pulled out all of James's stuff and decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to start a church. And that's how the Apostolic Joe and I Church was founded. Um, you know, I, I ended up posting on a couple of uh, message boards online at the time. Hey, are you interested in an esoteric organization and an esoteric church? And got a, a couple of hits. One of the very first ones was, of course, the current patriarch of uh, the AJC. And, uh, you know, the, the rest there is history. Um, I, I ran the AJC for a couple of years. And at that time, kind of felt like I had some unfinished stuff that I wanted to do elsewhere. Um, plus, I, I feel like, at least for me at that time, it took a different personality to run things hmm. than it did to start them. And I, I didn't know that I had the personality to keep that thing going. And I feel justified in making this statement, you know, hindsight 2020 uh, but just in looking at how well they've done mm. you know since i since i handed it over to sean mccann uh, their current patriarch um you know i i think it's the like the largest fastest growing international gnostic church on the planet right now some crazy crap like that so um, let, me, let me ask you a question yeah because yeah. you've, you've talked about so many things here and i want to i know I'm, I'm i'm sorry no, no, it's, it's why I had you on. I, I want to have these conversations <laughs> and I love hearing you chat. Um, what, what kind of personality does it take to run these things? Because, you, know, you know, I've been in my share of, you know, I was in the OTO in several different groups that all imploded or exploded. And I was in the Orem Solace for a bunch of time and change of leadership. And it, you know, my, my, local group was excommunicated and you know i was in the aa for a while and there were various you know things with that um that that just left me you know with nowhere to go um mm -hmm. what is it you know and i've and i've seen my share of that in the in the lakumi traditions as well you know in different places what does yeah. it take to run a thing like that well because i feel like there's you know the, what i've seen is there's like, if there's a strong personality and they can kind of hold it together with their personality, mm -hmm. that works until it doesn't, until they leave right. or retire or whatever. But what actually does work? What makes sense when it comes to sort of bigger organizations around that kind of stuff? You know, I think uh, you, you kind of hit on it with the, the big personality. Um, not in that that's the answer, but in that that's not the answer. I, I think uh, a strong personality, um, a, a willingness to get shit done, to say, you know what, screw it, we're going this way, we're doing it. Like, that's the kind of personality you need to start something, to mm -hmm. really get it going, to, to gather people in, to inspire other people. But to keep it going, I think you need somebody a lot more conciliatory. You know, somebody, somebody who is open to, willing to, desirous of working with other people and incorporating them into the, 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 the living, you know, the, the, the daily life of the organization, a, a strong personality. Um, you know, again, I, th I think it's, it's 
um, absolutely necessary to get a thing started. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so much inertia there at the beginning of, of anything that you, you need to build up a certain amount of momentum to, uh, you know, to, to overcome initial obstacles. And, you know, nothing kills momentum faster than a committee meeting. Um, Especially if not much is already happening, right? Right, right. Yeah. You know, it, that, so you, you need that strong personality. But after you reach a certain point, I think that strong personality becomes detrimental, mm-hmm. you know. And if you don't have it within you to drop that and become more conciliatory, then you're just kind of a, you know, you're kind of a bully. You, you end up with, cl- you know, strong personality clashes with other people who, mm-hmm. you know, who might be able to come in and do amazing things. You know, I, I think, okay, so a perfect example of this, going back to uh, where I was and, and where Sean McCann was at the beginning of the AJC when I handed things over to him, um, you know, he was... He'd only been a bishop for like a year. Okay. You know, I, I'd consecrated him. And to be fair, I had even gone like a, a, right after his consecration, I went on vacation uh-huh. for like six months. And I was like, you know what? I just need a break from all of this. I'm tired. You run things. Call me if you need to, but I'm out for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, really even that, that first six months, he was kind of running things. Um. Because of his age and because of his natural temperament at the time, you know, sort of not really sure of himself, uh, not wanting to make a mistake, he was naturally more accommodating and conciliate. So um, the current uh, primate of North America for the AJC, Martoma, uh, was a bishop with another organization who came into the AJC. Uh, We'd uh, become friends uh, while I was still there, but uh, he officially joined the AJC uh, after I left. And he is a very strong personality, but he's also been, you know, has been just an amazing asset for the church. And, you know, in, in looking back, I don't know, like, you know, would I have given him the same opportunity? You know, when you've got those, the, the two alpha dogs clashing, right? That are the, you know, the two strong personalities would would the same results have come about? And I'm, I'm not so sure that it would have, you know, I think um, by me stepping out and by Sean coming in and having that, that natural conciliatory manner and welcoming him in, excuse me, as a, another leader. um, I, I think that was a huge part of their success. And so what does it take to run an organization? I think it, it takes the ability to find, to find that in yourself, to realize that, you know, you know, it, it's not all about me. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I care about this, if it's going to run, I need to, I need to be conciliatory. That makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Oh, for sure. Because, you know, yeah, a lot of people just, a lot of what I've seen is it gets to a point where people are just like, look, it's, it's my way or the highway. And then, right. you know, and then, you just have, you know, whatever, right? Like, like the thing around the apostolic succession where they're like, will you please give this to us? And be like, absolutely never. You know, like you just end up in these, these things where it's so stuck that there's no, there's no movement possible. Right. You know? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, when, when you lay down something like it's my way or the highway, you end up with a ton of fantastic people choosing the highway. Yeah. 
and and you're left with you know just the the sycophants and uh, what happens to your the organization then i mean uh you mentioned your uh, experiences in the orem solace and well, i i remember uh, you know when leon um proclaimed it an all christian organization when he was still uh you know grandmaster and you know it was it this is it it's my way or the highway this is what we're proclaiming mm-hmm. a bunch of people chose the highway you know, and then uh, he kind of pulled back from that a little bit, and then somebody else took over, and then you did this. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think uh, that's a perfect example of what you were talking about. There, when you have leadership like that, things tend not to grow organically, and even if they do survive that personality. Uh, that type of personality, they don't survive the end of that personality. Mm-hmm. For sure. When that, right? dies, when that person dies or, or, you know, converts to evangelical Christianity and says, you know, unicorns are bad or, or whatever. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting, you know. I also think it's, it's interesting how, I wonder how contrary to what people might think, that that sort of more conciliatory aspect actually works to sustain the teachings versus dissipate them. Because mm-hmm. what I see where there, where there's no or nominal flexibility is then there's these sort of backlashes and waves that come back and forth, right? You know, the new group comes in and, you know, they're, they're all, they're all into witchcraft and that's it. And if you're a Christian, you're out, right? In response yeah. to the Christians who are like, well, we're Christian, you know, and especially in a group like the Urim Solace that at least sort of in its heyday was so founded on research, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, what's, what, what are you losing, you know, by these massive sways, right? So, right, right. Yeah. You know, and also you get, you know, you, you get buy-in from from everybody when you know regardless of the the kind of organization right whether it's it's a business or a a teaching order or a church you you get buy-in with conciliatory leadership you know people feel like they have ownership you know they have a stake in it and so they care about it and they want whereas if it's just here it is it's my way or the highway and then you know well okay it's your way it's never my way at that point no matter where i am in the organization if i'm not on top it's never my way it's always i'm doing their way and you know we as people we tend to like our way (laughs) well and especially more magically inclined people right right you know there's there's a, a tendency towards ego you know not necessarily in a bad sense but just ego that uh that doesn't really uh if it's not addressed in some capacity you know, so how did, how did you find the transition or how did you sort of manage that transition from uh, Tibetan Buddhist practice, which is pretty, you know, which is very structured, you know, um, to, to kind of your, your other practices, which sound like they, they, they were through lines, but they weren't as rigid, if that's fair. Oh yeah, absolutely. About that. Yeah. You know, actually, I think it was um, being on sort of those diametric poles was beneficial to me, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as as structured and rigid as as Tibetan monastic life was uh, the Temple of Set, on the other hand. And I think why um, 
why I, I enjoyed and sort of embraced uh, what they were doing so much was because they're so much more open, right? You know, you, you show up and one of their, their primary tenets from the book of Coming Forth by Night is, you know, the text of another is an affront to the self. Mm. You know, so every initiatory degrees, you know, okay, it's time for you to be recognized as a second degree adept. They, they don't confer initiations. They okay. recognize after you've achieved something and then they say, okay, well now go write that initiate, you know, that, that initiation ritual, go do it, mm. you know, go create it, you know, come up with your own, mm. uh, you know, have it, have it, you know, don't, don't just pull crap out of your ass. You know, there, there, there's, um, there's a very scholastic aspect to them. I think when I, when I joined, you know, I got, I got a binder that was like, and I'm, I'm holding up my fingers. Nobody can see them. <laughs> it's like an inch and a half to two inches thick. And the vast bulk of that was a reading list, mm. you know? Um, so, and, and part of recognition is their recognition process is go out and read these books, mm -hmm. go out and study this material, go find more and then come back and tell us what you think about it. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's this, this, this scholarship and then this production and it's, it's really, you know, I don't want to give the impression that it's this loosey goosey kind of thing, but it, 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 it is very different from the structure um, that I experienced in Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, I, I think I tried to incorporate some of that in, in my later work and it's still something in, in my own personal practice. And when I'm working with students, it's still something that I, even down to, you know, giving them off in a reading list. Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, uh, pick, pick six books or pick three books or you know, whatever, read them all from different categories and then come back and let's talk about how, you know, what material from this book on this topic and this book from this incredibly different topic, how do they play together? Mm -hmm. you know, what do you get from reading both of those back to back that you wouldn't have gotten from reading either one separately right in isolation what what new comes out of that um and i i think that's sort of been um th that came out of that experience of strict rigid practice with with tibetan buddhism and then the more open uh but but scholastically uh informed uh setianism like like this kind of was born out of that and i think that has been regardless of what i've done since um sort of my my entire method of a, a approach for things hmm. I, just, I, does that make sense I, I really feel like i'm just rambling on that. no no not at all yeah totally makes okay sense. cool i mean for cool. me i kind of went in the opposite direction you know i i was doing ceremonial stuff you know throwing some chaos magic and you know all that kind of different things and then i'm as i moved into lakumi and you know the uh orisha tradition that i initiate got initiated in um it's it's there are just ways that things are done you know mm -hmm. and and it so it's been a, been a move away from from that kind of structure and a stepping into that structure and what i see is that so many people um struggle with that access you know like yeah. you, know, okay. you know for for people to accept that there is um a way that things are done or you know in 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 light of a tradition the way that things are done and that that part isn't subject to conversation so much is very difficult for a lot of people, yeah. you know. But it's also a really important experience, I think. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I went from uh, the uh, the founding of the AJC into East Asian esoteric Buddhism, uh, Tendai, and uh, you know, from there Korean Zen, uh, you know, Sun Buddhism, uh, and those are both. I mean, you don't get more rigid than the Japanese. Right. And, and there's a, but there's a purpose for that. You know, they, they, um, there's this idea that when you take all of these people together and you force them to do this, this sort of thing, this sort of way, we, we kind of polish our rough edges off, you know, yeah. and if everybody was just allowed to go off and do their own thing, you would never find your rough edges. Um, you know, and so in, in, practicing Tendai Buddhism and then in going through, uh, you know, the, the Zen Buddhist uh, koan curriculum, um, that was, it was very rigid. There's a way you do it. You know, there, there's even an entire different language almost uh, for going through koans that if you don't, if you don't know it and if you don't do it, you're not going to pass. You're not going to, you're not going to advance. You know, it's, it's almost uh, like, learning that language, which is both, uh, you know, poetic and performative, you know, Mm. there's, there's a physical aspect to it, but learning that language is what allows your brain to operate in the way that it needs to operate in order to get the insight that you need to get. Sure. You know, there's, there's no book that you could read that, 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 you know, could tell you that Uh, there's a story out of, um, uh, Dido Lori's uh, place, Zen Mountain Monastery, back when he was still alive, um, they had a book with all the answers to the koans in it, and somebody stole it. And one of the head monks was like, you know, ran up to, to Dido Roshi and was like, hey, you know, somebody stole the book. What are we going to do? What if they publish it? What's gonna... And Lori Roshi was like, yeah, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. The answers aren't in the book. It doesn't matter what was written down. The answers aren't in the book. Yeah. The answers are what we see in front of us. It's like, you know, I live here in Cincinnati. And if you read a ton of books about Cincinnati, but had never been here and then tried to pass it off, you know, in talking to somebody that was born and raised here, they'd know pretty quickly you're full of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if you've both, you know, if you've been there, if you have visited there, if you're talking about, Oh man, you know, did, did they finish the construction over on, or, you know, all of that sort of yeah. stuff that just, you know, then they're like, Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so I, I think there's definitely value to this is the way th- you know, things are done for a lot of traditional things, just because if you don't do it that way, you don't get the experience or have the effect that it's supposed to provide, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Well, that's why, um, you know, I, I, my experience of memorizing tables of correspondences when I was doing <laughs> ceremonial stuff, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's like, well, why memorize it? There are books. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, it, it preloads your cognition with, with a framework that stuff that wants to work within that framework can then work straight through as opposed to, Absolutely. you know, having to attempt to bridge that gap without that extra framework there, you know, it's possible. Anybody can have a vision of, you know, take your pick and, and that might be authentic and whatever, but it's, it's a lot rarer and it's really atypical as opposed to sort of the, you know, that, that more you've done the work set up and now they're going to show, show you a thing in this way. Absolutely. Well, and you know, putting on my, my, clinical psych hat. I, in the middle of all of this, I also went on and got 
uh, various graduate degrees in psychology, um, we know that the thoughts that we think change the physical structure of our brains, mm-hmm. you know? And so memorizing tables of correspondences, it, it, it's not just putting information in your head so that you can have it a quick recall. It's literally making a physical change to your brain. Mm-hmm. Is that physical change necessary? Is that, you know, a, a, an integral component to the experience that you're trying to have? I, maybe not, but maybe it is. And if that's the case, if it's not just about being able to have something on immediate recall, in which case, you know, why don't I just load preload 777 on my phone? Sure. And then if I, if I need to know a correspondence, I'll pick it up. You know, if it's not just about having that piece of information, but if it's about the change that it's affecting in your brain that is allowing you to maybe perceive or, or experience, you know, something, then, you know, by not doing it, you're either never going to get there or like you said, it's going to be really damn rare that mm-hmm. you get the experience that, you know, that you're hoping for. Yeah, I think the, the, you know, the real answer is the magic is in many, many parts of it, right? And not just in the quote unquote secret word that activates the ritual or what, <laughs> right? It's, yeah, it's exactly. so many parts of it that, that are not, um, they're not necessarily glamorous. They're almost never talked about overtly in books or in other contexts, right? You know, yeah. I almost never see anybody talk about that when I read a book about magic, it's like, yeah, yeah. And then you just like do this thing and, and it'll happen. It's like, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe so. Sure. It's just yeah. the magic word. You just say the word. The word. Well, I, the yeah. bird is the word, right? That's where we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, uh, Aiden Walker recently made a, a, a post um, that I think brilliantly comes to this point And it was, I, oh, how did it go? See, I brought it up. Now I should uh, at least be able to remember it. But it was along the lines of, you know, the, the vast majority of success comes from mastering the basics. Yes. Not from some advanced, uh, you know, rarefied thing. Um, you know, and, and he was coming from it from both an esoteric and a physical, uh, you know, point of view. Uh, and I, I thought it was brilliant when I saw that. Yeah, I remember that post. He was basically sort of saying like, you know, sure, some super custom tailored fancy technique might get you this extra increase because it was it was it was coming from a, a fitness training point of view, the article that he linked to. Um, but the reality is, is, you know, showing up four days a week and, you know, doing the basic things, that's going to get you almost everything. And the other yeah. stuff is, is, you know, especially over the arc of time. Right. So, right. And yeah. that applies to so much of what we do, right? Just showing up and doing the basic stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, and, oh crap. There was, uh, where was I going to go? There was, nah, never mind. It'll come well, back to me. if it, Let me it. ask you this question. Though. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we've popped out this, this term a couple of times here and there. Uh, Gnostic. What is, okay. what is, what does that mean to you? What, what does that mean? You know, like I, I hear it a lot. I've seen it a lot. You know I mean? Uh, you know, Crowley talked about it a bunch, you know, different people talk about it. You know, there's the, the, the Knights Cathars and, you know, all that stuff or whatever, but what, what does it mean to you? What is it actually, what, what's the relevance of it at this point in time? Sure. Uh, well, so first off a, a, a caveat, I, I, uh, technically I, I don't even really identify myself as 
agnostic anymore, uh-huh. um, which I suppose is actually kind of peak Gnosticism in <laughs> itself. We live in a post-Gnostic era. Right. Um, and, I'm, and I'm glad when you asked, you asked, you know, what does Gnosticism mean to you? Uh, because it is a, uh, I mean, it's, it's, we apply it retroactively to a lot of ideas, right? None of the ancient texts, like none of the Gnostic gospels say, and I'm now writing this Gnostic gospel or, mm-hmm. you know, um, Gnosis, uh, for me, the way, the way, um, I, I learned it, the way I taught it and the way I experienced it, uh, Gnosis is knowledge as opposed to information. Mm-hmm. And, specifically it's that uh it's that noetic apprehension that comes after the sort of dianoia the 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 after the intellectual information gathering and crunching and it's an apprehended knowing you know to to, to in the spiritual sense i mean more mundanely it's just knowing right it's 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 eating peanut butter rather than having somebody read off the ingredient list of peanut butter to you mm-hmm. yeah um, so that you yeah you can never tell somebody else what peanut butter tastes like mm-hmm. you can taste it then and then from then on you will forever and always know what peanut butter tastes like um and that is you know exponentially different from knowing what goes into it mm-hmm. um and and so uh, in a spiritual and in a magical sense, then gnosis is that experience. I mean, just like we were talking about that experience that comes from doing certain things. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and it's, it's specifically that experience that can only come from doing certain things as opposed to just reading about them, whether that's, uh, a, a, you know, in, in esoterica or or spiritual religious and and oftentimes those are blended uh you know you can read about an experience of the divine or you can have it i think one of the the most underappreciated uh esoteric texts out there is by uh saint john chrysostom um in defense of the hesychasts uh so hesychasts uh heretic orthodox not heretic but almost near heretic orthodox sect um (laughs) <laughs> excuse me, who practiced um, hesychasm, uh, this this mystical combination of the Jesus prayer, uh, kind of a yoga position and breathing technique that they they said would allow you to uh, experience the energies of the divine. Mm. In fact, you know, advanced practitioners of this were said to literally physically glow, mm. like they would just glow in the dark. And uh, this got a lot of bishops' panties in a twist and uh, John Chrysostom wrote this brilliant defense of them, basically laying out theologically why this, this theosis, uh, this, this knowing of God, is not heretical. You know, they're not saying they can know God because you can't wrap a finite mind around an infinite thing, but you can experience, right? You, can you hear that humming right now? No. From okay. your side? No. Yeah. So my mic... I'm going to flick it real quick. That fixed it. Sorry, I've, I've got a loose connector there. Uh-huh. Um, but you, you can experience it. You can have an experience of it. And he likened it to a number of different things. Uh, one of them was, you know, sitting in uh, a ray of sunshine. Mm-hmm. You, 
you know it, you can experience it. It's not all of it. Nobody's saying it is, but um, that that's gnosis mm. to me. That that experience. So let's let's. Uh, I'm going to ask you a really unfair question. Okay. Okay. Sure. So how do people determine what is different between an authentic gnosis with something, mm-hmm. with a spirit, with God, with wherever, mm-hmm. and a more psychological or, you know, even intellectualized engagement with it, you know, because there's so many people who have experiences of different things and, you know, going back to your, your uh, Zen stuff and to your Tibetan stuff, there are very mm-hmm. clear things that are markers, right? For what's an authentic sure. experience, you know? And I even remember when I was in the Orm Solace, came to my teacher and I was like, had this, had this experience with one of the archangels and they showed up in this way. And he's like, great. And then he pulls out a piece of paper and shows like, pulls out a, a book from his notes about it and shows me what I saw. He's like, mm-hmm. that's, that's because you're, you've moved beyond your own cognitive stuff being in the way of that connection, yeah. you know? So how do people know that though? Or how, how do people even begin to work with that if this is a new idea for them? You know, it's uh, the, the easiest way is having a teacher, right? Sure. Yeah, there's the uh, famous story of um, Gampopa and, and Milarepa, his, the, the yogi Milarepa, who is Gampopa's uh, meditation teacher, and uh, at that time, you know, the, the Tibetans generally don't meditate in groups. They don't do silent meditation. They get the instruction, they go away, they practice, then they come back. And uh, Gampopa came to his uh, Milarepa after some time practicing. And he's like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm beset by devils constantly. This is what, and Milarepa was like, just chill out, keep doing the practice, that, that'll all go away. A few months later, Gampopa comes back again. And he was like, teacher, you, you, you're you're so right. It's amazing. All the devils were chased off. Now I'm visited constantly by angels and dakinis and it's just wonderful. And it's bliss. And Milarepa was like, uh-huh, that's cool. Just keep, keep practicing. That'll go away. Sure. You know, having that, that teacher that can, that can guide you, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, uh, in, in Buddhism, especially in, in Tibetan Buddhism, emptiness, shunyata, big deal. And having an experience of emptiness, is a big deal. Like this is one of the major mileposts and the literature is just, I don't got a bad connection. The, the literature is just scattered with warnings about, you know, don't intellectualize this. Mm-hmm. Don't intellectualize this because when you do, when you get an idea in your head of what that experience is, you reify it and then you're stuck, right? You're, you're stuck with that idea and you think, Oh, I have had this experience and therefore this experience, you know, um, and without sort of that external verification by somebody else who's been there, mm-hmm. right, without talking about Cincinnati with somebody who's also been there, um, you know, and confirm, yes, absolutely, I know exactly the street corner you're talking about or, you know, whatever, um, you can easily be led astray. How, how does somebody working on their own do this? Well, that's tough, you know. Um, at, at that point, uh, I think you have to, I think, initially approach, you know, unverified personal gnosis, UPG, with skepticism, 
Yeah. You know, I think that's that has to be the default when you're on your own, no matter how amazingly lifelike and 3D this apparition was, or like an, initially approach it with some degree of skepticism, keeping in your mind, this could just be wishful thinking, or this could be, you know, whatever, um, and then give it time, mm -hmm. right? If, if it was a teaching, if it was a practice, if it, does it bear out? No. Are there, are there, are there external things that coincide with it? If you, you know, you're given a vision of this, uh, you know, amazing new practice. And then the very next day, somebody randomly starts talking to you about, you know, a symbol, which is exactly like the, the, the linchpin for that practice, or, you know, you know, you, somebody brings you something that you specifically need in order to, you know, you, you look for confirmation still from outside, even if it's not, from a specific like teacher in a lineage of a thing, mm -hmm. you're still looking for that external confirmation. And it may not be for, for years and years and years that all of a sudden something happens and then it clicks and you're like, Oh my God, mm. I had that dream, you know, three years ago about this. And, and here is the Holy crap. This is a, you know, okay. Then you, then you go with it. Um, but no, if otherwise, if somebody shows up and just says, hey, you're the chosen one, uh, or, you know, you're, you're yet another incarnation of, of Alistair or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, maybe keep that in your back pocket. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, yeah, I think that, that time will tell, right? Yeah. Time will tell. We'll see if this holds the test of time, for sure. Right. You know, and, and you can have, I think, amazing personal experiences that are meaningful to you mm -hmm. that you never say anything to anyone about or do anything with. Uh, and, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they don't have to be huge revelations or they don't have to be, you know, even if it was something that was just the product of your own mind, maybe yeah. it's useful. To, you know, it, but again, yeah, I, I think that in order to tell the difference between genuine, a genuine experience of gnosis um, like that, yeah, it's mm -hmm. external confirmation. And yeah. so, it brings back to one of the other questions that I want to check in about. Mm -hmm. What role does lineage play for you in all of these things? I mean, I know in my Lukumi lineage, you know, lineage is everything, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you are, you are in that, in my tradition, you are initiated into the lineage, you know, right. lineage becomes your family. And, and that changes so many different dynamics because of it. You know, it's not just like, it's not just about the information that was passed from person to person, but it's actually uh, the license to practice certain things, the requirement to practice them in a certain way in accordance with lineage and a connection to all of those spirits who carried that lineage forward, you know? So it's a, it's a very living dynamic thing. What, what role does lineage play for you? And, and what do you see as its sort of um, values and challenges, you know? Wow. Um, I'm going to cheat and refer back to something that I, I wrote uh, a while ago. Uh, I think it's always I, welcome. Okay. Cool. I, I tend to think in terms of three different kinds of lineage for any organization. Yeah. Um, physical lineage, um, practice lineage, and, you know, ultimate or primordial lineage, right? Which, so, um, and what do I mean by these? The, the physical lineage is just the people, the stuff, right? The, the boots on the ground, the people doing the thing, the buildings, the, you know, the, the, the institution, 
the practice lineage is the stuff they tell you to do, right? These are the, these are the teachings that I, ideally have been, you know, tried, tested, passed on um, initiatory uh, aspects of initiatory power, right? That are meant to facilitate things. Uh, obia or, or apostolic succession. These are all conferrals of a power meant to facilitate something. Um, sorry, I'm going to thump the mic here again. Uh, I think you might be picking up on the, someone's running a shop vac or something downstairs. Oh, okay. Hearing that in the background. Then I'll, I'll trust it's on your end and not mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the practice lineage there. And then the primordial lineage is what you're uh, ultimately connecting to via these three things, right? So the physical lineage exists primarily to transmit to the people it brings in the practice lineage, which then facilitates connection to the primordial lineage. And, you know, the, the first two exist uh, ultimately, uh, they, they function only to the point that they do those things, right? If, if at any point the physical institution loses its connection to the primordial lineage, they're dead, right? It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a fossil. It's, it's, it's a, it's a club. It's a, it's, you know, it's cosplay or, or whatever. Um, if the practices no longer facilitate connecting you to that primordial lineage, then they're not doing their thing, right? They, they don't work anymore. But then once that connection to the primordial lineage is made at that point, new practice lineages and new physical lineages can be instituted without that connection. They can't be, um, you know, this is, this is one of those things that like in, in Buddhism, people um, there's this idea from people outside of it that, for example, tons of sutras attributed to the Buddha, but he, you know, we know historically he didn't say these things. The Buddha didn't write that the Lotus Sutra isn't taught by the, but no, technically, yeah, he did because within you know with the game rules of buddhism state that there there is only one enlightenment right buddha means awakened once once you have had that experience right once you're connected to that primordial lineage there's no difference between you and siddhartha gautama right so if you have legitimately had that experience within the game rules you can write something today and say, this is a text by the Buddha. Mm. And that's, you know, 100% legit. Um, there are institutions where I think you can bypass some of this, but I find them to be so phenomenally rare right the person that just stumbles upon either a a practice lineage that works to connect them to a primordial lineage or or you know okay a big example of this uh, you know with what i'm doing now apostolic succession is a huge thing right there there is a conferral of authority and power with that without which none of the other sacraments will be there period, full stop. 
Yet within broader Christianity, very few people question the legitimacy of Paul as an apostle. Because in the middle of his, you know, previous life as a, and I don't know if you can hear the air quotes I put around that, uh, as a, uh, you know, assassin for hire, um, he had this vision you know, on, 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 uh, was it the, the, the road to Emmaus, I think. Anyway, you know, he had this vision of Christ and he converted and now he's an apostle. Mm-hmm. And I think most, most people in, in the broader Christian world, okay, we'll accept that. You won't find any apostolic lineages, I believe, tracing themselves back to Paul. I'd be, I'd be surprised if you did, but you know, nobody, nobody lists him as an apostle with an asterisk by his name kind right. of thing. Um, but you also then don't hear about this happening all the damn time. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody spontaneously, uh, well, damn it. Okay. The, the, the Gnostic revival in France in the 19th century, Jules Duanel. Yeah. Okay. They, they, he, he claimed it, but then even, even he went on to get actual apostolic succession. So, um, you know, I think I, it's well, rare. I th- it's I think it's a little a big, more rare than people think. I think there's a big difference between, um, a connection to a spirit, you know, um, and mm-hmm. even a spirit that might have, you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm certainly not the reincarnation of Crowley, but perhaps, <laughs> perhaps I could connect to his spirit in a way, and his his spirit could act as a, a guide and an animating force in my work, you know. Absolutely, I'm yeah. not saying that that, that 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 happens per se, but. Um, but that could happen, and that is uh, not uncommon, you know. Like the, right. you know, like there there are lots of things, you know, where. But where but when those things do happen, happen, yeah. Yeah, but when that does happen, there's a lot that preceded that. Yes, right. It doesn't it doesn't happen to you know the the random grocery store clerk who has you know never even picked up a copy of book four or you know whatever, right? For sure. Yeah. You know it so. Yeah, and. But that experience is also not necessarily the same as the experience of that connection to that primordial, you know, energy or the the current, even though if I was connecting to Crowley, I'm connecting to, you know, the prophet of, of Thelema. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm actually collect connected that step behind that, you know? Right. Right. And I think that, I think that that's also an interesting distinction, you know, and that's where, lineage and traditional initiation facilitate that you know because Mm -hmm. you may connect to that current possibly as you say there are examples but i think there's a big difference between um connecting to a spirit that that engages your work and guides you and something sort of one step further beyond that into into that that lineage that deeper force you know right and and access to one aspect of a lineage also doesn't necessarily confer access to another aspect of lineage. So for, you know, um, you know, I, I have apostolic succession via the Episcopi Vagantes, you know, at the wandering bishops. Um, and we may trace our lineage, you know, even up into, you know, popes, uh, in, in Rome, but that doesn't make me a Roman Catholic bishop, right? That's the physical institution. And yep. even though I might have access to both primordial or, you know, both uh, practice and primordial lineage there, 
that that grants me absolutely no standing whatsoever in the physical uh you know lineage kind of thing um which is something i think a lot of people tend to forget especially in the independent sacramental movement um they, they tend to not get that these things are they're they're disparate they're they're separate they're they're discrete things um yes generally they're they're connected and hopefully you know if you get involved in one it it is um but yeah if you if you stumble across it if you just happen to meet up with some guy in a you know hotel bar in ontario and uh, get this sounds so bad now that I'm saying it out loud, get invited back up to his hotel room to uh, get consecrated as a bishop one night. Um, great. You know, that, that doesn't mean, you know, you, you can show up at the Vatican and be like, you know, where, where's my room? Um, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that dude, he initiated 50 people that week. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So it, it's, uh, you know, lineage is, lineage is important and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you could make the case that even though I'm breaking it down into three different things that you could say, well, they're really all the different aspects of the same thing. Um, and you could probably break it down even, you know, break it into four different aspects or two or whatever. But, you know, in, in general, I think uh, for those three reasons, at least, lineage is important, especially in... Uh, religious, spiritual, and and esoteric bodies, wherein the point is connection with something higher, with with that primordial aspect. If you know, if the point is just education, then you know, the, then you know, lineage is you know by the book kind of thing, like the modern grimoire revival. You know, sure. there's 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 no living lineage you know solomonic lineage that's passing this kind of thing no it's you you find the book you as best you can decipher what the hell they're talking about uh-huh you do it as best you can and you hope like hell you have an experience similar to what they said you're going to have um and, and that that's kind of it the, the book at that point is the lineage until you know you make that connection you know, the, the book then is the practice lineage. There is no physical institution, yep. you know, physical aspect of it. And then, you know, hopefully you, you do the practice until you get that, that connection that then continues uh, in, in your work. Um, you know, I think a physical institution could happen, um, but it's, it's, it's not necessary. So I guess even in that sense, there, there is a lineage. You're just accessing it through the information that's passed on through both having the right book, mm-hmm. having the, the the brains to figure out what the hell it's saying, and then having the guts to follow through and do what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to look at some of that stuff as more, um, more, more technological, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, more in that se- second realm of the practice yeah. than, than the lineage, because I think that you can to some extent plug some of that into whatever lineage you you might have access to right or whatever sort of primordial element you would have access to you know right. so when i was very interested in those kinds of things um you know i was i was not interested in the golden dawn i was very interested in thelema and so i would just go through and swap out all the words you know the the words that weren't thelemic for words that were thelemic and do work in that direction <laughs> And yeah. then use that that sort of connection to that primordial juice and and that piece of it to, you know, uh, you know, 
call up whomever and be like, Hey, listen, by the power of Babylon, you're going to do whatever, you know? And, and I think that's possible because it's, it becomes, it's, it's this, the grimoire stuff can be more technological maybe than, than sort of lineage based necessarily. In general, I I tend to think tech is tech. Um, But, you know, then again, there are lineages where without having the appropriate lineage, Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what knowledge or information you have, it's not going to work or it's not going to work the way you want it to. You know, when you look at Tibetan Buddhist magic or just Tibetan Buddhist practice, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're, if you don't have the empowerment of a particular deity, Mm -hmm. the practice is at best ineffectual and at worst dangerous because you're, you're in effect, you know, trying to contact these, these powerful personalities, um, and they don't know who the hell you are. Right. Right. It, it, it would be, it, it would be like showing up at, I don't know, pick a, pick a powerful, a famous powerful person who could be dangerous to you. Um, I immediately, I don't want to make this political. I immediately think Trump, uh, <laughs> right. Not that you, anybody, I don't, you know what? I'm not even going to go there. Um, but yeah, you pick a, a person with temporal power, mm-hmm. Right. Um, Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. He seems sure. like a really nice guy, right? I mean, everybody in Canada seems so super nice to us uh-huh. here uh, you know, in the hinterlands. Um, but I bet as nice as he is, if I went to Canada and I saw him on the street, if I came running up to him at full tilt saying, hey, Justin, let me, you know, trying to get... I'm, I'm thinking there are some people that would tackle me to the ground. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and so, you know, the empowerment, the, the connection to that lineage at that point is the facilitation of that contact, right? It's somebody coming in who has that connection. Somebody who's saying, Hey, you know what? Let me introduce you to my good friend, Mr. Trudeau. Mm-hmm. And then once they facilitated the introduction and we've shared a couple of drinks or whatever, at that point, you know, I can then, you know, wave from him from across the street and maybe he'll remember me and then we yep. bump into each other, you know, that sort of thing. Um, sure. And, and I, I'm absolutely convinced that, that Tibetan Buddhism can't be the only place where something like that is, is required, where if you don't have the hookup, if you don't have the official connection to that lineage through the prescribed means, you know, best of luck to you. Something might happen, but who's to say what it is and yeah, how it's going to go. Yeah. And whether or not you wanted it. Exactly. Exactly. For sure. (laughs) So we've been, we've been chatting for a long time because this has been really lovely. And I want to ask you one more question before we wrap it up though, because there's one other thing we we haven't gotten to, which um, I was uh, delightfully enjoying on your Facebook, which is this very state, various statements of, of uh, Gnostic belief, you know, or this sort of, you know, where, where you're discussing uh, how you believe in uh, you know, the, this, the fallen angel and the energy that comes with that and how you believe in Christ in this way and how you believe in, you know what I mean? If we think about the apostles creed, we have a very clear example of a statement in that direction. Um, But, you know, all sorts of traditions have their own. Um, But you're, seemingly contradictory from some people's perspective, mm-hmm. uh, ideas about the nature of the universe, uh, really 
both sort of tickled my fancy. And uh, if that's, if that's not a weird thing to say, and sort of reflected uh, a bunch of my own kind of contradictory or apparently contradictory notions about it. So I'm mm-hmm. curious um, what, what you were looking to do as you were expressing that and sort of what kinds of beliefs you have around, you know, the nature of, of the universe in that kind of construct. In general, um, I have a very dim view of belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think they're very dangerous things. Uh, people ought to stop having them. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> when I, and when I post that, I think one of the, the worst things that ever happened to the world was, um, and this is ironic, I think, coming from me, is, is Christianity and its emphasis on creeds. Mm. You know, it, Christianity was weird for any number of things when it arrived on the scene. Uh, but one of the things it was most weird for was that it was a creedal beliv- a religion. It was, uh, you know, it pivoted around what people believe mm-hmm. as opposed to what people did. It wasn't performative. Um, and, you know, this idea of having right belief then is something that, that, that came into play. And, you know, I think history has shown us what a dangerous thing uh, requiring right belief uh, can be and then determining that. Um, when I post shit like that uh and i i I feel absolutely justified in calling it that (laughs) a lot of times it's just to kind of work out for myself um what's been bouncing around in my head what's going on at the time um and also looking for a little bit of that sort of external verification right if everybody responded with a what are you on or did you not sleep last night or you know then i know okay this is maybe a little bit out there um, but then when I get responses from like, uh, you know, that really tickled my fancy or, you know, um, that's a sign that, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I might've figured a little bit of something out, or maybe I might've glimpsed a little bit of, of something here. Um, and I think having creeds that don't fit together nicely, um, works together well for me and by cre- you know, having beliefs that are paradoxical, that, that aren't, uh, you know, that, that are sometimes juxtaposed against each other um, is, is beneficial. I mean, it goes back to, I, I think, what I was talking about with my own sort of practice where, you know, you take these two disparate things, you take these two, two different books, two diametrically opposed, see what comes out of it, see what, see what you make from it. Um, and I think a lot of times the thing that makes something paradoxical is really just a limitation of our language. Sure. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of, uh, not, I think I get the most pushback, for example, with uh, the Church of Light and Shadow, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, the, the, my newest endeavor, um, because I talk about the morning star and people are like, well, okay, you seem to be implying that this is both Jesus and Lucifer, which is it? And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, you know, I, we have this tradition that Lucifer is the fallen angel. Um, however, there's only one figure in the Bible who ever identified themselves as the morning star. Mm. That's Christ in the book of Revelation. Sure. You know, um, and the more I sat with that and their specific roles and functions especially the you know not not the not the satan of uh you know the hasatan or you know of the opposer of of you know, or the anton lemay right yeah and, and, but this this the 
you know, more the Lucifer of, you know, Milton and, and Dante and, you know, the, the, the very popular romantic Promethean myth of Lucifer that we have today. Mm-hmm. That is very much a Christ figure when you look at the role that Christ played, right? Christ did not show up and be like, you know what? All right, everybody just do what the temple priests say and follow. You know, he was very much uh, a, 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 an ego-driven individual. I mean, we can consider the Gospels as spurious as, as we would like, as far as whether or not this figure, Jesus actually said these things. Um, but the one thing that, you know, like it, when you get to like the Jesus scholars that came together and trying to figure out, well, what's most likely that he said, uh, one of the things that they had pinpointed is most likely coming from Jesus based on what we know of the context and what got past his doing away with the old law mm-hmm. and saying a new law I give to you. Right, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what people gloss over here is it's not saying love your neighbor, which by that he means everybody, right? Love everybody else. He's not saying love them more than yourself. He's not saying debase yourself before. He's saying love them as Hmm. yourself. And if you don't love yourself a great deal, you're going to be shitty at loving anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, how Luciferian is that? You know, he, it, it, and so looking at these two figures in that way, looking at them both as, as light bringers, you know, it, in fact, it, it was really, it was not until I looked at, the gospels and teaching of teachings of Jesus from a Luciferian perspective that they really started to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. It does for you sure. Know, and, and so I, I think there's, there's, there's definitely something there. And, and this, this perspective is not new. I did not make this up. Sure. Um, this idea of having a, a, you know, a, a sacramental Christian church, practicing folk magic is also not new. Uh, you know, magic and Christianity have been tied together for as long Catholics as there's... Catholics everywhere, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I, I think I commented recently on Facebook that, uh, you know, if you're not ready to accept that Christianity is a weird necromantic cult, then you're not ready to study church history. Yeah. Um, but when looking around for this you know, for, for, for something that really embodied and embraced that, um, I couldn't find it. There's mm-hmm. nothing, you know, like there, there's, there's, there's nothing out there. There are Catholic witches that are, you know, going to mass and, uh, you know, practicing in, in private or in secret. And there are Christian, but there's no organization that's embracing both of these things. And the more I kept looking for this and the more I kept posting, uh, you know, both things like, you know what, I believe this and I believe this. And the more feedback I kept getting from people saying, you know, yeah, yeah, me too. Where's that from? This ought to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, we have enough independent apostolic Christian churches running around. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the independent sacramental movement, but in general, uh, you know, you end up with 
jurisdictions of, of one. Somebody belongs to a church long enough to get consecrated a bishop, and then they're out of there so they can go do things the right way. They they had a, a great experience while they were in Vegas from somebody they met in the bar. <laughs> right? Next thing um, you know. Now, now they're off. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I, I, I get in trouble. I get, I get uh, people in the, the independent sacramental movement uh, angry with me when I tell them, you know, look, if it's really about the mission, like you say it is, you would stop what you're doing, find a larger church that's actually already doing this and doing it a lot better because they've got the bodies and the resources and you yeah. join them. You're doing this just for the title. Um, and so I was, I was loath to start yet another church, mm-hmm. uh, you know. In a, in, well, but, and I think just before you move past that point too, and I think yeah. that there's also value in doing a thing like becoming a bishop for yourself. You yeah, know, oh, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's great too. You know, I mean, many, many Orisha practitioners become priests for their own well-being you know, and that's fantastic, but be clear about that and then go from there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You you know, um, I went for years ordaining people and limiting their faculties. Uh, So when you're ordained a a priest, uh, you receive faculties or permissions from the bishop that tells you what you can and can't Mm -hmm. do, basically. Um, And I, I would ordain esoteric practitioners who just wanted that that plug into apostolic succession for their own spiritual and magical practice. And I would, you know, I would tell them, well, okay, great. But without any sort of pastoral education, I'm not going to license you to do any sort of pastoral work. You, you don't get to go start a church. You can say mass in your home privately, that sort of thing. That's fine. Um, just go be a private priest. Um, and it took a lot to move me away from that and, and decide, okay, you know what? I think I am, I think there's enough momentum around this um, to, to do something about it, to found it. I'm a firm believer in if you have an idea for something great and nobody else is, has done or is doing it, maybe that's a sign it's supposed to be you. Um, and after poking around and getting enough encouragement, I decided, all right, screw it. We're going to do it. But if we're going to do it, this is how it's going to happen. And You're the person you were looking for. I am. I was the person I was looking for. Uh-huh. I hate when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot of work. It means a yeah. lot of work. Yeah. It's so much easier when you can find a person who'd be like, don't worry, Mal, I got you. Come right. Come to the oh. party. Everything's all set up. Just bring a salad and some hummus. Exactly. You bring the dip in the soda. That's like the lowest rung of, yeah. uh, uh yeah, yeah, that would have been great. Um, but in order to do this, I, I've done, I think, some unique things. You know, so for example, I mean, people have contacted me and said, you know, how how do I? You know, I love this idea. I'm on board. This is this is great. This resonates so much with me. How do I join? Well, there there is a self dedication right on the website luxumbra.org, org, uh, and you perform the right. You let us know that you did it, mm-hmm. and you're in. That's it. You yep. are a Luxembrian. Um, you know that that that's it. We are we are we are self-proclaiming because I I really think that uh, you know stepping onto this this sort of via media this this middle path between light and shadow has to be self-instigated. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there there is a lineage aspect afterwards that that you 
connect to, but I think it, it has, that first step has to be self-initiated and in keeping with the Luciferian aspect, it has to be self-proclaimed. Yeah. Nobody else can tell you that you are this. You have to come out and, and declare, mm-hmm. this is me. This is my path. I'm one of you. And at that point we say, okay, you're in. Perfect. Welcome to the club. Exactly. Yeah. It's fantastic. So that's a great spot maybe to, to wrap it up. Okay. Where, do people, where do people find you and where do people uh, check out if this is the, the thing that they want to proclaim to themselves in the universe? <laughs> well, people find me at McAnally's on the corner. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook, uh, you know, uh, Mal Strange Fellow. I, I think I'm probably the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, uh, you know, yeah, the, the, the church, the uh, Church of Light and Shadow, the Luxumbrian Church is at luxumbra.org. So that's L-U-X-U-M-B-R-A.org. Uh, you know, look under about, or I think maybe the link is, the navigation is membership, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's plainly titled Self-Dedication. Click on that. It gives you the right uh, to perform. Read through it. See if it fits with uh, with what you're feeling. And uh, if so, man, jump on in. The, the The water's fine. That's it. I'm leaving the Church of the Subgenius, and I'm coming over to you. Sweet. <laughs> we're happy. To, we're happy to have you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for making time today. It's been uh, It's been a lovely chatting with you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, you know, this is the uh, reboot of this podcast, uh, 101 episodes in. Uh, I'm going to have some uh, old favorites back over the next while and some hopefully delightful new people for you to see. Um, I'm also going to be shaking up the Patreon and starting to add more content there going forward. However, if you would like to uh, support that, that is always super welcome. Uh, you can head over to, uh, patreon.com slash the hermit's lamp and, uh, you know, sign up to support that, that, uh, supports the transcriptions, uh, you know, and just me doing this work in general. All right. I hope that you are all well. Uh, I have missed doing this and, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts and ideas that came from this podcast.